Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Now, Ben and I, as I mentioned, are automotive journalists, and you can find our work all over the internet. You'll find mine at autoguide.com, and you can actually find some of Ben's work there, too. But Ben's far more experienced than me, and you can find his work all over, all over. And can you tell me at least two publications, maybe three publications you write for, Ben? Oh, Automobile Magazine, Haggerty, Classic Car, and Super Street. Let's go with those. Okay. Though that's like only one quarter of his uh, clients. So you can find his work in almost any one of your favorite publications. And I love that. But what I love more than talking about what Ben, who Ben writes for is all of the cars that we're going to talk about today, Ben. I, yeah. What? I've got another supercar to talk about. So I know let's you get do, started with that. It is supercar springtime. It is, the, it is March <laughs> now. And I know – here's the thing. So I'm bored in March – uh, spoiler alert. And I always thought of myself as a spring baby, but March is not spring, is it, Sammy? Not At least not in Canada. I mean, we've got this uh, winter that goes on for most of the year. <laughs> so, And you avoided that winter by heading down south to spend yeah, some to... more time with your new best friends at McLaren, which <laughs> yeah. you spend more time with them than you do with me, it seems. Well, I mean, Ben, if you had a McLaren for me to drive around uh, Scottsdale, Arizona with, I would 100% be visiting you as often as I saw McLaren, which actually is not as as much as you think it is. (laughs) I'm glad that there are parameters to our friendship. Okay, so I drove the new McLaren 720S Spider. Now, me and you, we went through the hierarchy of McLaren vehicles last week, but I'm going to tell you again, the 720S is their kind of, it's their... Oh, how do I describe this? This is tough. Their Halo supercar is the Senna, and below that, I, I believe, is the um, P1, although the P1 is not being offered anymore, and then it's the 720S and the 720S Spider as a result. So this car starts at $315,000 in the U.S. Wait, three, it makes 350 or 315? 315. Okay. Not that it matters to me, like, like somehow I'm counting pennies over here, like, mm, can't do 350. I mean, that's the, that's the cost of, like, what? And, uh, uh, a Nissan Kicks, that's the difference. Wow, that's, that's your go-to when you're trying to fill the gap <laughs> automotively? It's like, you know, on Amazon.com when you're trying to get the free shipping and you're, yeah. like, you're, trying to, you're trying to get to the $25 mark, there's a website where you can go and it will tell you all the things that will get you, like, the 85 <laughs> cents you need. So for you, your mind is like, ah, what fills the gap for a McLaren between 350 and 350? You're like, I know a Nissan Kicks. <laughs> yeah, how do you – you're in my head too much. Um, okay, here's what I gotta tell you about this thing. It makes 710 horsepower what? And, and 568 pound feet of torque. How does it make that? Like, what's the what's the drivetrain? Oh, a twin turbo four liter V8. Okay. Yeah. No, it's hi- no hybrid stuff, right? No hybrid stuff. All right. I know how keep, much you're. Way to keep it clean, McLaren. <laughs> yeah. Um, no hybrid stuff. It does zero to sixty at the same time or in the same time as the 720 coupe, which is very important. 2.8 seconds. Whoa. Yeah. Hey now. It does 0 to 124, which we t- discovered last week was uh, 200 kilometers an hour, in 7.9 seconds. And how much faster is that than the 600 LT, or is it? Uh, it is a little bit faster than the 600 LT. Let me just get my, my numbers for the 600 LT, and I can 100% 
um, compare the two because for whatever reason I was unprepared. So they're both spiders, oh, though. Like the LT. It's about half a, a second faster to. Uh, 124. Okay, and they're both spiders. Like, the LT was a yeah. spider and the S is a spider. Okay, I understand now. Right, and you've got to remember the the output of the 600 LT that I drove, which was mostly on the track, was 592, and this is 710. That's a good chunk more. Yeah, it's a huge number. I mean, that's... You know, how many kicks is this that in horsepower? <laughs> uh, at least two kicks. At least two, yes. <laughs> At least need two Nissan kicks. Um, it also has a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission, which is very good. And um, it has a – what else do I need to tell you about it? It's very lightweight. Uh, dry weight is under 3,000 pounds. And the – the like a running weight, I suppose, would be about 3,236 3, 3, 3, pounds. You know, Kix is one of those 80s names that you just don't hear anymore. Like, I remember when I was a kid watching whatever TV in the 80s, like, there'd be one of those action TV shows, and there'd always be a character named Kix, like That's K-I-X. Yeah. And he was some kind of badass or, like, played by his own rules or something. And, and no one ever questioned the fact that his parents didn't love him and gave him the name <laughs> Kix. Or maybe he gave himself that name. It's but a nickname you get for either your cool shoes or running around or, like... No, I think it was, like... But then it would be K-I-C-K-S. These guys were always, like, K-I-X, like Kix. Yes. Like Kix Charles. Which sounds like Serial. It does. It does. And then in the 90s, that kind of disappeared. Like, mid-90s, no one was named Kix anymore. So I'm wondering if there's going to be, like, a hipster re-swing where, you know, right now people are naming their kids, like, Adelaide and Irma and all those names from, like, pre-war. I wonder if there's going to be, like, an 80s resurgence, like a rad-style naming where people are going to be, like, Kix and Trace and, sh- and stuff like that. I hope so. I mean, what would you – wouldn't you name your kid? Do you even – would you name a pet Kix? No, I I think that's a lot of pressure on a pet to be so cool as to like earn the name Kicks. I mean, come on. I would. I would definitely name a pet. I mean, a cool dog like a like a greyhound name it Kicks. That'd be badass. What? So when you think cool dog, <laughs> like this is interesting insight into your mind today. So cool cool dog is automatically greyhound. No, I mean, well, I mean the greyhounds they're known for being fast, and I figured Kicks would go well with that. All right, I can. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Uh, also known for going fast, McLarens. And yes. the 720... Wait, wait, so is there going to be a McLaren Kicks? <laughs> is that no, what you're trying to say? There is no Kicks okay. uh, on the McLaren. I believe it does the the quarter mile in 10.4 seconds, which is 0.1 of a second sh- uh, quicker than the 600LT. But as we mentioned last week, the 600LT is a track-focused version of the car, and it's also got that like long-tail styling. Yeah. While the mclaren 720s doesn't have i mean as capable as it is on the track i imagine it would be very capable on the track this is actually meant to be more reg- used regularly on the road and it's far more comfortable and far more like luxurious and accommodating than the uh 600 lt ever could be and there's a lot of reasons for that first of all it has um remember i told you last last week it has an the the 600 lt has a normal mode um, instead of a comfort mode, well, yeah. the McLaren has a comfort mode. The 720S has a comfort mode, and then sport mode, and then track mode. There's also a really cool um, suspension system. I can't quite, I I can't quite figure it out. I believe it has a hydraulic suspension system that I believe doesn't have sway bars, and um, it's a very smooth ride, no matter almost no matter what. Uh, and I was really impressed by. Um, 
by the way that this car drove so, on regular roads. When you say it doesn't have sway bars, like how does it work then? Uh, with hydraulics. So it, there's horizontally opposed hydraulics, or how, yes, how, okay. that's from what I understand. It has um, these um, not horizontal. I think it's a. It's not. I'm sorry. I should have. I should have figured out a better way to describe it to you than than this. Um, it doesn't have these physical anti-roll bars. And one second, I'll 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 get you in a minute here. Um, just so that I can <laughs> I can visualize it better. Yeah, because visualization is so important in an audio only medium. Like I know, I guess so. Um, it's a fluid based suspension system. That's the best way to describe it. Um, and so they got rid of these traditional um, sway bars. Okay. Does that help? In yeah. Any way I, let's just move on. <laughs> oh no. Um, what else can I tell you about this thing? I'm sorry, I'm blanking. It was a little while ago, and I'm uh, I'm, yeah, I'm almost two weeks. Off. Wow. Yeah, I'm caught off guard here. Very fast. It looks. I think it looks beautiful. It also has those dihedral doors that just make a show every time you get in and out of one of these cars. I'm really weirded out in in some ways by the by the operation of McLarens. There's a lot to uh, accommodate for. Be it those doors, sure. But uh, there's all sorts of weird controls, like the mirror controls, for example, are almost underneath the dashboard. And that's really like it it took a while to figure that out. And uh, the the infotainment system controls a bunch of um, settings that are it's really like not intuitive at all. But one of the more interesting things to to account for with the McLaren, especially the 720S Spider, is how easy it is to see out of. And this is a very common complaint with a number of supercars. They are uh, wrapped around you very tightly and sometimes they have these very raked windshields or very thick A-pillars to accommodate their mid-engine uh, layout. Yeah. And this one just doesn't – first of all, incredibly thin A-pillars, like like very thin A-pillars – um, additionally, it has – now, I hate this phrase. They use – a lot of people use the word buttress or flying buttress to describe um, what is essentially a C-pillar on the McLaren. Um, but I would I would just call it a C-pillar. Now, the, this is usually a, a hard piece of, of bodywork, and it's difficult to see past that, especially in a, in a convertible. But the McLaren's model is made out of um, an interesting uh, see-through material. It's very strong from what they tell me, and that makes it so much easier to uh, look around, do shoulder checks, or check behind you. And I think that's something that's that's not usually accounted for when it comes to supercars. No, I mean, supercars are often some of the most, as you said, difficult vehicles to – yeah, compromised vehicles to look out of. I mean, yes. all you have to do is go back in time to the Countach, which is like – impossible to the point where i believe they installed a periscope on certain models so that you can see behind you and and things haven't gotten a lot better since then and and a lot of that has to do with you know uh the form factor of the car's engine placement like you said and all those fun things but uh it's nice to hear that mclaren is kind of taking a step in the right direction and beyond that i mean the best part about a spider is that you can drive it with the roof down and you can hear that four liter um twin turbo v8 making all of its noise now i I will contend that McLaren's like um, soundtrack are, is not as distinguished as uh, Lamborghini or Ferrari's soundtrack, uh, but I think they're getting there. I think they're they're getting a little bit more recognition. Well, what they about do it? What about it doesn't? Bit, what, what about it doesn't sound good? There's like a there's 
a really musical note to the way that a Lamborghini or Ferrari engine sounds. And instead of um, that, we get more of a mechanical note, something that's a little bit more raw, which definitely will accommodate other people's tastes. But to me, it can sound a little, um, it just lacks character. Um, is the best way to describe it. But to to so many other people, that might be the character they're looking for. And McLaren, they made their chops um, as engineers of some really interesting cars. Not only that amazing F1, right? Like that that set so many benchmarks back in the 90s, but also in F1, Formula One, um, they were a... They were they were using carbon fiber back as early as like the 80s, and they've they've instilled their knowledge through the highest level of to, to what many people believe is the highest level of motorsport um, out there. Yeah, and that's a very different type of company than a company like Lamborghini, for example, right? Which, which has no real history of motorsport, and in fact, the the the, the head honchos at Lamborghini were very against comp- competing their vehicles in motorsport for a super long time. I, that's changed in the last ten years. But mm-hmm. uh, Lamborghini's participation in racing is a relatively new development, so it's it's not a given that a supercar company um, has that kind of heritage. Um, now that, that roof disappears in 11 seconds, which is pretty quick, but what I also found interesting is when the roof is up, there is, it's outfitted with what's called electrochromatic glass, which is on the, on, it's basically a moon roof and it's the width of the, of the entire roof panel and you press a button and it changes its tint from, I think 35% to 80% or 90%, okay. which is the coolest thing ever. It's like magic. And I'm telling you, it's one of the coolest gimmicks in the world. I want it in all cars going forward. It's so neat. Um, and they and I found that to be really interesting because, you know, you buy a, a spider to get a closer, you know, to, to feel like you're a part of the world around you. And even when the roof is up, there's an opportunity for that in this car. So what did you not like about the car? Oh, braking. Braking is one of the weirdest parts in McLaren's. Um, I had this issue with the 12C. I think I talked about it last year. Yes. Um, it requires a lot of pressure to get to, to for the brakes to start working. It's insane. It's almost like there's 50 to 60% of the, of the pedal is completely dead. Is, and is you it, really you have to dive deep into it. Is there some kind of kinetic recapture going on? Like, no, I don't think so. I mean, I I believe the car has um, uh, automatic engine start stop. Okay, but when you're pressing down on the pedal, almost nothing happens until, like I said, that fifty percent mark. And when you're at a stop sign, if you let up your 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 foot only a, the the slightest of 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 a margin, it'll start rolling forward again. Which I found I found insane. Huh? That is. You, I mean, that you just really sounds, have to be awake. I can't think of a reason for that. <laughs> so I, I can't either. And what was funny is the 600 LT was far more normal feeling. It and in fact, I don't think I mentioned it last week. So I was I was very happy with with the way that car drove in comparison to this. But you know, there's so much more going on in this in this vehicle, and the way it drives is much more uh, accommodating and much more smoother and much more easier to to. Uh, live with even though it doesn't give up some of the the characteristics that you expect from a supercar and a a speed focused machine a car that emphasizes driver engagement and just like that 600 lt the steering wheel is alive in your fingertips you can feel it every little thing going on through the steering wheel which is unbelievable do you know how much 
that it's like a it's day and night compared to regular cars that we drive um, on a weekly basis. It's day and night. You, you know this because you drive um, in old school sports cars, at least during the the non witchery seasons, right? Yes. And and being able to feel everything that's going on with the car through your fingers just adds a, a, a completely intangible element to the driver connection, right? Like it really makes you feel like you're one at one with the machine. So um, actually, I, uh, I I I found out what happens with the the suspension system that you were talking about. Yes, the uh, Pro Active Chassis Control Two. That's right. That's what it's called. So it, it connects the left and right um, shock absorbers on the car using hydraulic hoses and hydraulic accumulators. And then in order to keep the car level, it resists extension um, on the opposite side that you're turning on. So it's kind of like it's using vertical pressure to maintain levelness of the car instead of having a horizontal force like a stabilizer bar uh, linking the two sides together. I appreciate you for, uh, taking the time to look it up while I was uh, stalling for the entire time of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it's better or worse. I don't know if any of our listeners out there have an opinion on that. Uh, it does seem kind of like, you know, complicated for complication's sake, but it's entirely possible that there's a very significant reason why you would do that. And I guess, I don't know if it's lighter because you don't have the bar, but you do have this extra fluid yeah. and uh, the, the plumbing for that fluid. Well, so. I'm, I... I I will admit it is the smoothest riding supercar that I've ever I've ever driven. It is truly um, special, on par with uh, luxury sedans in some ways. When you really want it in that comfort mode, it feels like it feels like nothing else. It feels like no sports car. And when you put it in that sport mode, it's really cool. So, so it, there's it, a lot of sorry. It, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say it has a top speed of 212 miles per hour, right? How fast did no, you no, no, get hold it? on. Yeah, 212 miles per hour, and then 202 with the roof up, I think. Yeah, and so how fast did you get it up to in Mexico? Uh, I didn't get it up to as fast as I got the 600 LT. Okay. So that that I mean, we had the LT on the track, and this one we had on the on the public roads. We were doing a little bit over the speed limit in some cases, like. Uh, but there's nothing to be like. We felt more comfortable driving this one, yeah, at any pace, at any pace, at any speed. Um, and there was no, there was no sense of what I loved about the the 600. Uh, sorry, the 720s is that it was comfortable at whatever speed you were comfortable at, which is something that I don't think could be said about the the LT. It was constantly egging you to go on further to its most extreme level, and so this one had far more. Um, degrees of uh, there's a bigger spectrum of where it's com- where you'll feel comfortable in. Okay. Um, I want to tell you more though. Like, I love the rear end of this vehicle. I think it looks great. I love the way that they've integrated the spoiler into the bumper of the of the car. Um, it's like the entire width of the rear end, and it um, it has a bunch of settings as well as um, it accommodates for when the roof is down as well. It helps in in some way or another there as well. It's an, an additional setting of it being a spider. Um, the the spoiler can move uh, a new direction that the coupe never could, which I find interesting. And I will also admit I'm not a huge fan of the front end looks, especially like near the headlights. If you look at the way the the McLaren looks in a 600 LT, for example, it's got this really nice um, curvy headlight design. Um, and the the lower grill ends up looking a little bit like a smile. The 700 LT looks a little bit bug-eyed in some ways or another because it's got like uh, 
like a, a vertical, a horizontal cross through its headlight um, pod. And that's a functional element. There's a intake there, but uh, it just ends up looking a little awkward in some ways. Now, is there any, do you have any final thoughts on, on the car? Just like uh, things that you definitely want to communicate about it that people should know? It felt faster than I've ever I've ever been on in, in in a car before, and it gained as much attention as anything else. I want people to know that McLarens are are definitely up with the like deserve to be up with the rest of the automotive industry um, in terms of supercar design and engineering. I think they should be mentioned in the same breath as as Lamborghini, McLaren, especially for the buyers who are looking for these things. But I don't know if – first of all, I doubt anybody in our in our fan base is, is listening and thinking about buying a 720S Spider. It's very expensive. It's a dream come true to, to drive one of them, and I don't know if I'll ever get that chance again, so I'm happy I, I got it. I don't, I don't know if you should make that kind of sweeping assumption about whoever's listening to this That's podcast. True. But the, I will say this. I don't think anyone who buys a supercar does it because they heard an auto journalist talk about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, don't, I think we have zero influence – in terms, I, those those people are buying them for entirely different reasons that have nothing to do with the opinions of random dudes writing in magazines or or, or random ladies. I I know that you're not a huge uh, like supercars don't speak to you um, as deeply as they do other enthusiasts out there. But would you ever consider buying a McLaren over the Lamborghini or Ferrari equivalent? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think about buying any of these cars. I have no thoughts. Right. None whatsoever. So you don't want to – you don't even want to answer that question. I don't – the answer would be I've never thought about it, to be honest, until until you, you, I you mentioned it. it. If, if I was going to get something like that in the from the modern era, yeah. maybe an R8. Yeah, the R8 is very good and it's pretty affordable too, right? Like in, in relatively affordable. I, I think that my interest in, in supercars, as casual as it is, pretty much ends in like 2001 or 2002. I <laughs> totally understand. <laughs> But, I, but I, I did drive something uh, last week, or actually not last week, a couple of weeks ago, but I hadn't had a chance to talk about it now. That's not super whatsoever, um, although it does have a super handling all-wheel drive system. Okay. And can you guess what that might be, Sammy? It starts with an A and ends with an A, and there's an X. <laughs> it's an Acura... It could be... I mean, all of their cars have an X in it, so it's an Acura <laughs> something. It was an Acura RDX... And it, which is oh, their entry level oh. SUV, I believe okay. it's still the entry level SUV. And I drove the advanced package, so um, there's standard technology, A spec, and advanced, uh, which is their their top tier version of the car. But um, let me just double check and make sure. It, well, uh, yeah, RDX is still the so RDX used to be a lot smaller way back in the day <laughs> when when compact SUVs were actually compact. The RDX was fairly small, but nowadays the RDX has has grown, and for 2019 it was is redesigned. So uh, it was refreshed; it has a different look. Uh, the interior's been spiffied up. Um, it still comes with the same engine, I believe. It's the uh, two liter turbocharged engine that you can find in the Honda Accord. Actually, uh, this is all this is all new. I mean, this is the third generation RDX, and oh, the so second one was only available with a six cylinder. Okay, so the first one was that. available with a, with a weird 2.3 liter turbo that yeah, I don't think yeah, we saw on anything else. That's what, and I'm then it came with a V6, and now it's back to a turbo. Okay, Ford. yeah. So I, I'm wrong on that, but it's 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 a version of the one you find in the Accord. Uh, in the RDX, you get it 272 horsepower and 280 pound feet of torque, which is a respectable amount of power for a vehicle this size. Oh yeah, and it comes with a dun 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 10 speed automatic transmission, Sammy. 
How many gears do you need, man? I need them all. Apparently, um, it's it's that the, the in, in the U.S. it comes front wheel drive, all wheel drive. In Canada, I think it's just all wheel drive. The one I had was all wheel drive, super handling all wheel drive. And like I said, the advanced package just has all sorts of gear. Now, I drove this on a very long road trip, about eight nine hundred miles. So I spent a lot of time, and that road trip wasn't all highway either. I would say about half of it was two lane roads. Um, in the wintertime, in a blinding snowstorm. In fact, when I say blinding, I'm not just using that adjective casually. There were times where I had to stop the vehicle because I could not see the road ahead of me. Oh, no. I couldn't even see the vehicle ahead of me. They had completely disappeared. And it's, I mean, fog and snow uh, at that level, if you can't see the road, I mean, you just got to hit the brakes. There's no point in, in continuing your forward momentum. But... Mm-hmm. Where the Ace, where the uh, Acura RDX really impressed me, was I never felt unsafe in those conditions. Even as snow was accumulating, um, even as visibility dropped to zero, it, it felt very sure-footed at all times. It had decent snow tires on it, winter tires, sorry. And uh, the all-wheel drive system just handled everything with zero problems. I, I never really caught it out. It never slid around. It never felt unstable. So I was really impressed with that aspect of the vehicle. Sammy, Sammy, have you you've driven the the RDX, right? I've driven the RDX, and I have to agree with you. The dynamics of the car and the way it feels on the road is fantastic. I really do like that engine. You're right; it's um, surprising how well a two liter turbo can feel um, pushing such a a big luxury car. Although it is the smallest crossover that they make, but. That's not saying much, is it? No. And, and you know, uh, I, I want to talk about that drivetrain. When I had it, it was a tale of two engines because for the first 400 miles or so until I refilled the tank, it really did not feel like it had any power. And then I put premium gas in it. <laughs> Interesting. And it was like I had a different engine. So the journalist who had the vehicle before me, and this happens from time to time in the world of journalism where people are like, you know what, I'm just going to put regular in it even though it requires premium fuel because I'm saving $4 a tank or whatever. That's annoying and it, it can kind of skew your impression of a car unless you run through a whole tank of gas and get to put the right gas into it. You can run it, especially with turbocharged engines, you run into this problem where it just dials back the boost and you just don't have the same power that you would. I mean, it was quite a bit quicker with the tank of the fuel that it was designed to have uh, sitting inside of it. Um, the and the, the transmission wasn't a huge issue. I didn't have any issues with the transmission. I think it was fairly transparent in operation. And there's a lot of drive modes on the car. In fact, they make the drive modes kind of a central uh, element of the driving yes, experience. So, so there's so a central. giant knob. There's a giant knob. It's so big. Okay. Are, are we going to start talking about the interface for the vehicle, or do you want to start talk, just keep talking about drive modes for a bit? I want to I want to make it clear that the RDX is a fantastic driving car with a very nice exterior and interior design. It's a little busy, but then there's one thing that ruins the car for me. There's more than overwhelmingly. One thing. There's more than one thing. Okay, um, fine. I I think we have to be honest. Uh, so when you design an interface. The biggest button should be the button you use the most. Mm-hmm. And for most cars, that's the volume control on the stereo system, or it's mm-hmm. the shifter, right? Those are the things that you're probably touching the most often. In the RDX, as you pointed out, Sammy, it is the drive control button, a button I never touched. <laughs> I think maybe yeah. two or three times during the 900 miles did I change drive modes. Um and yet, it dominates the center of the vehicle. It's this huge, huge button. 
the RDX's other problem is it has a touchscreen interface for the infotainment system that controls absolutely everything about the vehicle that is probably the most difficult touchscreen to use in the business. Not It's not just – it's a touchpad, not touchscreen. Sorry. Well, it, 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 is it not both? Uh-oh. <laughs> I used it only as the t- on the touchpad. I wish the touchscreen was – it was a touchscreen. I think it's a touchpad. It's a touchpad. Maybe – uh, you know what? I got to pull up a picture here because I'm I'm just all I'm remembering right now is my frustration. <laughs> it's it's blinding <laughs> frustration is what it is. It is absolutely- yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It is not a touchscreen. I am sorry. If it was a touchscreen, life would be so much easier. So, Can you imagine? <laughs> so there are, there are two touchpads in the industry so far. I mean, there's there's pseudo touchpads like from Audi and Mercedes where you can draw characters and stuff on the back mm-hmm. of a dial. That's that's fine. There's the Lexus N form um, interface which requires you to use either a touchpad or a mouse, both of which are horrible. The worst, yeah. the by far the worst in the business. And it's Lexus Remote Touch. That's what it's remote called, Remote Touch, right? sorry, yes. yes. And, and it's too bad because it's one of the few things holding back Lexus interiors from being truly excellent. Right. Um, but There's the, actually one more that we forgot about. Which um, one is that? Mitsubishi in the... Oh, that's because I don't try Eclipse me. Cross. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about Mitsubishi. But you're... It is... First of all, the Acura one has issues, like real issues. At least when we use the the Lexus one, we can get a general sense of what we're doing because it vibrates and it pokes and the buttons on the screen are ginormous. So it's easy to find things while you're, nav- while you're using sc- it. The buttons on the screen of the Lexus interface, honestly, it's like they were designed for toddlers. <laughs> they're like, huge. They're oversized, like those big blocks with letters on them you give kids who are just yeah. starting to learn shapes and colors and stuff. <laughs> and the thing snaps to them. It, that's a little frustrating, but once you get – it's easier to get used to it. But uh, on the on uh, the problem with the Acura mm-hmm. is that it's really not easy to navigate the t- the, using the using the touchpad – it's not um, intuitive trying to figure out how to get from one screen to the next because you, there's the normal, like, I'm tracing my finger around and moving the cursor or whatever, the selection thing on the screen. And then there's the, I have to rub it twice quickly in one direction to shoot from one screen to the other, which is really not, it, it's it's not intuitive whatsoever. And you know, a lot of the time when, when people like Sammy and I drive these cars and we only drive them for a week, we often over accentuate things that if you were the actual owner you would get used to because you're going to be driving it all the time and you're going to understand the quirks and stuff like that but i spent a lot of time in this car like i spent 15 hours in the space of two days driving this vehicle which is a significant amount of time to try to get used to something and it was complicated to the point where i stopped using certain features of the vehicle because it just wasn't worth trying to figure it out i didn't set any presets for the radio, like I, I set them on one screen. I didn't use all of them because I couldn't like quick snap to the other screens. There were, there were aspects of the car I just couldn't access or, or didn't want to access because it was just so distracting while I was driving to try and figure out what was going on. And that's that's the other point I want to make about interfaces. You should not distract from the task at hand, which is driving the car safely. And I will say this for Acura. There are buttons, hard buttons for using the climate control. There is a hard button knob for the volume. Mm-hmm. And which is weird because Honda is usually – like <laughs> at least Honda has been against that in the, in the past. Although and Honda and Acura sometimes are different entities. It's true. And there are there were buttons for the uh, heated seats. Um that's great. I like that and I commend that. But this system, I think, needs a rethink just from its complexity. I'm not going to say it's it's terrible, it's the worst of all time. It's really not. 
because Lexus is clearly winning in that category, and they're so determined to keep winning. <laughs> I think what what I mean if we're gonna if we're gonna compare the two systems, one I believe you can use Android Auto and Apple CarPlay with um, the Acura system, and two the the just the general look of Lexus's remote touch system is is really dated looking, and it it's, looks it is. It, mind-boggling that that is inside a car like the LC, which is one of the most beautiful cars currently in the market. And it has a very high price tag. Yes. Right? Yes. And the RDX, on the other hand, has a very modern-looking screen, and it's it's colorful and easy to and easy to look at, but just using that touchpad is fr- is frustrating. And to use it while you're moving is is near impossible. I don't think it's... I don't think... Unless this is their way to stop people from distracted driving, in which case it's terrifying <laughs> but you know enough beating up on the rdx's infotainment system um uh, it's huge inside uh for second row first row great room i was very comfortable the whole time i was driving even though it was really stressful driving um i i there was great cargo space uh which which i appreciated and uh, i drove it the reason i was driving it sammy is because i was going up to minden ontario which is about seven hour drive from montreal and i was there to drive in the lexus cup uh, uh, ice racing series. That's so cool. Like, hold on, wait. Uh, Lexus Cup. What is a Lexus Cup? <laughs> what is a Lexus Cup? I like I like the idea of an ice racing series, but what is a Lexus Cup? Okay, so there is a uh, in Minden. There's there's an ice racing track, and a lot of ice racing tracks are on a lake or they're an oval kind of thing. This is actually a little bit of a road course. It has oval elements, but also has a switchback in it. Um, and, uh, it, 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 they, they have many different classes of ice racing there, but, um, a few years ago, uh, or actually I think it was last year, my, a friend of mine, Russ Bond, who is a journalist who's, uh, associated with motoring. He has the, uh, two minute, uh, two minute test drive. Is that, is that, is that what it's called, Sammy? Yeah. And, um, he's a fantastic driver and a great guy. And he was like, he, he runs a, um, a cart, uh, driving school for, to teach kids how to drive racing carts and, you know, basically just int- improve young drivers skills in the real world. And he's like, you know what? I, I see a lot of these, um, Lexus IS 300s for sale, really cheap and online classifieds. Maybe I could buy every single Lexus IS 300 within a, 2000 kilometer radius and start my own racing series a spec series just for the is 300 and i'll rent out the cars or you can buy them from me or i'll maintain them for you whatever it is and it'll be a a legitimate point series and it'll run for seven weeks in the winter and that's exactly what he did and it looked like so much fun last year that this year i took him up on it and i rented one of his cars and went up to minden and did a full day of of lapping i I ran in two different classes uh, street stud one and street stud two and uh there were nine cars um, in the class, and I had a lot of fun. Um, okay, so what? How, do you know any specs about these um, about these Lexus? They're IS three hundred. Yeah, they're about two, they're about two hundred fifteen horsepower. They're totally stock. Uh, they have a stripped interior. There's a, a racing seat for the driver and a um, a uh, like you know those big like Bosozoku style rally style handbrakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got one of those too. Um, it's running on studded tires. They're, uh, Hankook I, I, I something, I pikes, I think. <laughs> yeah. Which are the, uh, the most, you can fit the most studs on those tires compared to any other studdable winter tire on the market. Um, and, and what is it like driving on an ice? Cause we've done kind of like these, these winter driving schools and they're like these neutered experiences where you just, um, you get to slide a car around in a very safe spot and get to understand <laughs> what a car is like, um, 
with uh, on ice and with studs. Okay, what's so, it like when you're racing other people? Well, this is this is entirely so. This was my first door to door racing experience. I do a lot of time trial stuff. I do a lot of lapping, but in terms of like competitive door to door driving, this was my first time. The thing about ice racing is that it's chaotic, but it occurs at very low speeds. At, at mm-hmm. the end of the front straight, I was probably going 70 miles an hour maximum. But through the corners, you're down to like 25, 30 miles an hour. And that's where all the contact occurs. And I, I, I think on my, my first two sessions in the morning, um, they were qualifying sessions. And Russ, <laughs> he, he, he took me aside. He's like, look, he's like, just get out there, get a feel for the car, uh, stay towards the back. And stay away from that car. And he pointed at one of the other competitors, and he's like, "They've already put two cars out for the season." Oh my god! <laughs> so just that poor guy. Just stay away. So I took his advice on my on the second lap, and I, I want to mention something here. Another fun thing about ice racing is since it's low speed, you can bring a passenger. So I had my dad with me the whole time, and we've never been in a we we, we race together all the time in the time trials, but we've never been in a car together. So he was putting his trust in me to be completely sideways for an entire day. <laughs> and uh, we're out there on the second lap, and the car that he had warned me about tags another car, and they just completely oh. pirouette, like, in front of us. And you have to... Oh, my to, God. It's like in Daytona. It's it's like at Daytona in uh, Days of Thunder, where, where Cole just has to aim f- for the smoke and, like, go through the smoke. Except in this case, you're not aiming for the smoke. You're aiming for, like, the spray of snow and ice. It's like suddenly <laughs> you can't see anything, like, in front of you. And you just have to, like, hope everything's going to be okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Go ahead. So we did that and, and made it through. I didn't, I didn't touch anybody, but it was, it was you know, it, uh, my dad was working like a spotter because a lot of the time the cars are drifting and you're sideways, and you can't necessarily see who's behind you because they're not behind you; they're right beside you, hmm. and they're outside of all your mirrors. So he's like, his head's turned, and he's telling me like how many inches away I am from the person who's also drifting directly beside me, which is pretty cool. I, the only time my dad got worried was when I, I cut a corner too close on the left side, and we hit we hit the snowbank, but we hit a bump of ice under the snowbank and launched the car in the air. Whoa! He, oh, he legitimately no. thought we were gonna roll. I knew we weren't gonna roll, but he didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no. um, it was it was it was a lot of fun. I, I qualified sixth in the morning, and so the four heat races in the afternoon, they're 15 laps each. I started sixth. Uh I didn't I, I think the best finish I managed was fifth, but I didn't finish any worse than sixth throughout the day out of the nine cars. So that yeah, wasn't cool. too bad. Yeah. I, I didn't think I'd be competitive at all, you know, my first time in this. They're they're all automatics too, which is interesting. Uh you, you the traction control's off and the transmission's set to snow mode, which like prevents like very active throttle because you don't okay. want to just stab at the throttle um and uh yeah there there was there was a lot of carnage like there were there, the, the last lap we were out there the car in front of us just completely spun while i was passing it and while someone was passing it oh, while no, trying to pass terrifying. me so we're like three wide in a corner and one of the cars is like completely sideways <laughs> facing a snowbank but it, it's cool because you're going 30 miles an hour and you just kind of steer around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually, I also drove with two feet, which I don't normally do on a track. Okay. Um, left foot braking, which I learned at the Team O'Neill Rally School. And right. it, it came in really useful for just positioning the nose of the car. But there was one session where I got really down on myself. I, I just, I kept spinning the car. Um, I never got it stuck, but there were a couple times where, you know, I, I 360'd it. And mm-hmm. uh, I just... Too much throttle, too much um, steering input, and and you, if you if you start to see the red mist or you start to get down on yourself, you you stop becoming smooth as a driver. And if you're not smooth on the ice, then uh, that that's that's really going to hurt you. Um, one of the one of the one last things I wanted to mention about it was in the last race, 
um, there's a one very long pendulum corner leading to the front straight. And uh, the key to that corner was to just drift it as wide as possible and to try and kind of claw your way out to the front. But one of the uh, one of my competitors had driven their car up onto the snowbank, like uh, horizontally, and gotten it stuck right wow. in the middle of the corner, the outside. Oh my of the gosh! So for the rest of the race, we all had to drift within a few inches of that person's driver's door <gasps> <laughs> as we went through this corner in slow motion. And it must have been so stressful to be inside that car while that was happening. Like, because just every car is slingshotting towards you, and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Sounds hilarious. Okay, so one more time. Do you know, um, are they all in, is all, are all of the races in Minden? Yeah, they're all in Minden, and they're all at this one track, which is and at how, the Minden Fairgrounds. And do you know anything about the, the cost of this? Uh, I rented the car for about $250, and then... Is that I, U.S. or Canadian? Canadian. And Canadian. then I think nice. I paid $90 for each run group, of which I ran two. Mm. Uh, six races in total. And I had to pay $10 for a temporary license from the Ontario Sports Car Association. That's not bad. It's a pretty decent um, cost, isn't it? It's really affordable for yeah. for racing. I mean, considering that it is legitimate racing. There's And, and uh, the, there it's two days, too. I only stayed for the Saturday. But if you stay overnight, you can run the Sunday as well and collect points for your car. Um, but considering that I rented the car, I mean, that's that's a really affordable way to just go out and have an absolute blast. I'm, uh, I've am i been seeing some of my other friends in Ontario actually participate in this. And it looks it looks like a blast. I would love to, to do that. Um, I'll probably take Russ up. I might contact Russ and, and see if... Um, if he's if he's got one more spot available for me, but it is really cool though. I I, I want to tell you especially I really like the Lexus IS. Um, that three hundred model is super is super cool too. It's a rear wheel drive luxury car that that is surprisingly um, sporty. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun and it was a well balanced car and uh, it, it's actually the first time I've driven that generation of IS. I never driven the first one, so that um, was cool. I think the one I was driving was a two thousand two or two thousand three. Cool. Uh, I've always wanted to buy one, but um, I don't know what stopped me. Something. Well, but, because race- they're like super reliable cars, but now that I see them, that they're racing almost every weekend in the snow, is pretty cool. Yeah, and 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 you know these cars have all been they're all dinged up. They've all lived a hard life before Russ got to them. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he, he he's not looking for trailer queens to put out on the ice track where they're going to get banged up with other cars, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was still a blast, and I kind of you know I really recommend ice racing for anyone. We live in the north. It, it kind of feels like the the driving season ends in in November, but you can really go out and do winter rally and do um, ice racing and have a blast. And it's not expensive to do. We were driving rear wheel drive, twenty year old. Um, you know, beaters basically. So if if you're willing to put studded tires, or you can even there were street there were normal street tread classes as well, which is interesting because if you Wild. go out, yeah, if you well, that's that most of the ice racing I've done in the past has been on non-studded tires. But uh, if you go out with studs after a street class has been on, the 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 ice gets so polished. Mm-hmm. From like the tire spinning, it's just incredibly slippery. Mm. So it, the other neat thing that's another neat thing about ice racing is the track is changing every lap because of how it gets chewed up by these studs and where the traction moves around on the track. So you have to always be paying attention. In that way, it's very different from from asphalt racing. But I highly recommend it as a cheap way to have fun. I mean, it sounds like it. Um, is there anything that you're going to be having fun with next week when we when we come back to the podcast? Well, uh, I'm I'm currently I, I just spent some time with the Jaguar I Pace, which is an all electric SUV. Have we talked about the I Pace before on the show, Sammy? Very briefly, but uh, I can't wait to hear your take on it as well. 
so yeah, that's that's what I'll be talking about next week. And what about you? Um, I will be talking to you about the brand new Toyota Rav Four, which has been completely redone um, this year and uh, looks a little bit more rugged and, and aggressive. It in, does. In I saw some it, pictures of it recently, and I was surprised by how it looked. And uh, I think it's a really important uh, change for the for the Rav Four, which is the brand's best selling car and maybe the best selling vehicle outside of the F one fifteen in the U S. Wow. Yeah, insane. I, I, isn't it the Nissan Rogue? Or no, I think the Rav Four outsells the Rogue. Really? We'll talk about it next week when we all get right. all of our stuff together. If, if you want to tell us in advance, <laughs> if you want to tell us in advance, how which wrong vehicle, we are? <laughs> yeah, how wrong we are. How, how can they do that, Sammy? Well, you can get in touch with us either through the contact form on our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, or you can reach out to us on a various social media websites. Uh, where on I'm on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha. So if you want to call me out for not knowing exactly how that complicated suspension system works, I will take your, your feedback and criticism with as much poise as I can. With a single tear. Maybe. Or, or you can talk to Ben. He's on the much more friendlier uh, social media um, platform, Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. You can also email Ben. He's Benjamin at Benjamin Hunting. Uh, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you remembered my name. Um, <laughs> if if you want to uh, hear past episodes, Sammy mentioned unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. That's the best way to do it. They're all listed there. Uh, you could also go to iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, Box, Castbox, Shoutbox, all the boxes. Every, we're pretty much everywhere where you can get your podcast. So just look us up, Unnamed Automotive Podcast, and you will find us. You will find, oh, we're up to, what, 115 episodes now? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a good two years of solid Sammy and I pretending to be friends for an hour and a half or an hour <laughs> at a time. And we hope that you'll come back with us next week and uh, let us spend your a little bit longer. 